Oh man, summer's here. Isn't it good? Oh my gosh. It's so good. There's no kings to catch, but I'll take the sunshine anyways. Uh, we come out of our uh, school routine, which is fairly structured, fairly rigid. We jump into our summer routine. The difference being that all of our kids are going out different directions for summer work at different times of day. My wife is essentially an Uber driver for children. Um, turns out they don't pay so great, but uh, she seems pretty happy. Um, we're going to jump into a new story, and this is a baby story. Have you guys seen babies? Man, babies are great, huh? I actually just met a new baby this morning. I met Jesse's baby. <clears throat> I have six babies. Well, um, not so much anymore. I have basically an 18, a 16, a 14, two 12s, and a 10-year-old. And uh, I remember the... Uh, each of them just coming into the world. I, don't, I honestly, I don't think there's anything this side of heaven that you can experience that has more of a sense of the miraculous about it than having a baby. It just is mind-blowing. Selah, my oldest, uh, I remember we were riding the L train, the red line in Chicago late at night. Jenny was working at Northwestern Memorial Hospital down on the, off of the Magnificent Mile, downtown Chicago. And I had hung around to take the train home with her, and we were riding the train, and she grabbed my hand, put it on her belly, and I felt Selah kick for the first time. Human interaction with my yet-to-be-born child. Oh, my gosh. And then she was born. We made a human together, and she was perfect. And then we had a son, and that's a whole different thing for a dad, right? feel more prone to probably ruining my boys than I do my girls, right? Because they're going to follow my example. It's a lot of pressure. My third was born, Talia. Jenny was in the hospital for 26 minutes. I was there for seven. We were coming, I was coming from the boatyard. I almost, I almost went to McDonald's to get some food. And the wisdom of God fell upon me and said... You should get there now and not walk in holding a quarter pounder. <laughs> and then we had twins. That was, that was a miracle. Uh, my wife prayed for twins. She prayed for twins. And then she was pregnant, her fourth pregnancy, and she said, I think I'm having twins. And I laughed at her. Uh -huh, hilarious. And God gave her twins, and uh, it was perfect. Uh, the delivery was just so, uh, she just, my wife's a champ that way. And then I had, I don't know if I told you this story, I had a dream after that. So we had twins, it was our fourth and fifth child. And then, you know, after child four and five, especially when they come at the same time, you know, I come from a certain heritage, and by a certain heritage, I mean a certain quantity of expectation of number of children. Anyways, and uh, so I felt the need to just kind of, you know, just be easy, like give her some time, you know, having twins is a big deal. And I think it was around the time our twins were about a year old. 
I had a dream of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby boy that was our child. And so I said to Jenny, God said that we announced him. <laughs> In fact, I think I said something along the lines of, I'm not saying that God said, but I had this dream and it just kind of stuck with me. Kind of like we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, some dreams just kind of like, they just strike you differently, you know. And she said, I was actually thinking one more. And I said, great, just make sure he has blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> and we had a sixth beau, uh, our youngest, blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby boy. What a gift, right? What a gift. What I, wanna, what I want to unpack for you today is what is it's an incredibly simple, and yet... Based on, based on how we know the world we're in, it's, I think it's a surprising truth about the way that God works in the affairs of humankind. So I'm going to tell you the story, uh, story of a baby. Um, I'm going to tell you the story, then I'm going to draw out just some observations about this truth regarding how God works. So we're, we're going to catch up from last week. Joseph invited his family to move down to Egypt, remember? It says that there was 70 of them, uh, which is, I mean, I guess that's a big family by some people's standards. Side note, my parents actually just passed 70. Children, spouses, and grandkids, 70. I, I forgot for a minute that I was teaching up here. And then Joseph, it says that they all moved down to Egypt, the famine ended, they were thriving there, and then of course, time went by, Joseph, all of his brothers died, the family stayed there, and it says, remember I, I set this up last week, and I said, kind of explained what happened, where Pharaoh eventually owned everything, right, including their freedoms. But it says that in Exodus 1-7, it says, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So the descendants of Jacob in their little, their little nest down in Egypt uh, were thriving in obedience to the very first command, which was be fruitful and multiply. That's right. Now, some time went by. It doesn't actually spell it out here, but we know from some other passages. It was actually a couple of hundred years. And there arose a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, didn't have any attachment to the memory of Joseph or the legacy of Joseph. There arose a pharaoh, and again, the pharaoh is just a name for the king of Egypt. That was a, a title that they were given. There arose a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, and he was very... Uh, it says, very afraid of the Israelites, of the descendants of Jacob, because of their large number. In fact, he, <clears throat> he says in Exodus 1, he says to his, to his posse, he says, these people, there's, there's too many of them. They're growing um, at too great of a rate. If they decide to band together, if they decided to join our enemies... We would be doomed. There's too many of them. Which is basically the plot line of A Bug's Life, for those of you who remember. <laughs> remember that one? 
This is a great movie. It's plagiarized from Exodus, but anyways. So, so Pharaoh decided that what he would do is he would defeat them psychologically. He would defeat them psychologically in order to keep them in bondage. And so he forced them into hard labor, treated them severely, had them working uh, to build cities for him. And it says that, that Pharaoh used violence to keep them subservient, basically to keep them afraid, to keep them submitted under his rule. He used violence to keep them subservient, and he made their lives very bitter. They were not just slaves. They were mistreated, brutalized slaves. Exodus 1.12 says, and the more that they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out. And so they dreaded the sons of Israel. So Pharaoh said, well, we need to get serious about doing something about this. We can't let this group of people continue growing. And so Pharaoh invited uh, two ladies they were Hebrew midwives, and apparently they were some position of influence over other midwives. It tells us their names, Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. He brought them to him and he said, listen, I have some instructions for you. When you go to deliver, deliver the Hebrew babies, I want you to uh, implement a new policy. When that baby is born, if it's a male, I want you to put it to death on the spot. All of them. And the story tells us the midwives feared God. I love that. In other words, the midwives had a greater concern for God's will than they did Pharaoh's will. The midwives feared God and let the children live. Pharaoh became angry, he interrogated them. Why are you letting the Hebrew babies survive? Why are you letting them live? I gave you specific instructions to make sure that none of their male children survive. And the midwife said, well, these Hebrew ladies, they're not like you Egyptians. These Hebrews, they're very vigorous. We stop to get a quarter pounder, and by the time we get there, it's over. The baby's been born, and we're too late. To put this in perspective, uh, we know that at the time of the Exodus, when they left, that there was approximately in the ballpark of about three million Israelites, which is 10 times the population of the city of Anchorage, right? That's how many people were in this group. So these midwives, just based on average numbers, are delivering between 75 to 100 babies a day. I'm sorry, Pharaoh, we just can't get to all of them, and so they, they're sneaking past us. They're surviving. I love this, Exodus 1.20. And so God was good to the midwives. God looked down on them and said, I like what you're doing. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. 
And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. And so Pharaoh realizes, I need to up my game. I can't rely on these women to do what I want done. And so he issued a decree. He actually made it a law of the land that every male Hebrew child was to be thrown into the Nile. And by making it a decree, he essentially mobilized his entire population to enforce this decree. Every Hebrew child, every Hebrew boy that is found by law must be thrown into the river. So you guys, you've been through this story before, a lot of you, and we're going to go through it together again over the next couple of weeks. But Exodus is like, has to be one of the most epic tales in all of the Bible, right? It's the showdown of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob versus the gods of Egypt, right? We have, we have the plagues, which are pretty spectacular, and then we have the whole thing where they they're going to leave Egypt and they run into water and they walk through the water and then God destroys the armies of Egypt while they watch him do it, right? So they have nothing to fear. And then there's going to be Mount Sinai and manna and, and the Ten Commandments and God coming down in a cloud and lightning. This is a pretty big story. And the setup is the Pharaoh king of Egypt is trying to destroy this population. And here it is. Here's the surprising piece. It's right as the story sort of takes on a grand scale, an epic tone, the, 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 the field of view or the camera of the story turns from this big sort of national crisis and goes way, 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 way down here and suddenly gets very small. And the next chapter begins this way. And so there was this one guy. He was from the house of Levi. Doesn't even tell us his name. And he married a girl. And she was from the house of Levi too. And they had a baby. had a baby boy and the mother looked at her baby and said that's a really adorable baby <laughs> and she knew what the law said she knew Pharaoh's edict and her natural instincts kicked in she says, there's no way that I would let harm come to my child. And so she did her best as a mama to protect this baby against a very imminent threat against its life. And so she hid the baby. And this worked for three months. And after three months, Baby started cooing in church, and it became harder to hide the baby. <laughs> it became more difficult to 
to ensure that passers-by didn't hear the sounds of the child. And committed to the well-being of her baby boy, it says that this Levite mama of three, actually, this was her third baby, this Levite mama uh, made a basket out of reeds from down by the river, wove a basket together, and then coated the basket with, with tar, essentially, with pitch, and then placed her little baby boy in the basket, and she would go down with the baby boy's older sister, who would have been uh, younger than 10 years old. She would go down in the morning, they would sneak down before first light down to the river, and they would take this basket with her little baby boy, and she would hide it down in the cool, next to the cool water among the reeds on the riverbank, and then she would leave her daughter there to watch out for her baby brother. And so there is the, the sister watching the basket near the riverbank. And she notices a group of people making their way down to the river. And as she looks closer, she realizes it's not just a group of people. Uh, it's a group of Egyptians. And not just a group of Egyptians, but it's a group of women. This is the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the Nile to bathe along with her entourage of women. And as she approached the riverbank, she saw there in the reeds a basket. She said to one of her servants, go fetch me that basket. And when they brought the basket to her, she opened it and discovered that there was a baby in the basket. A Hebrew baby boy. And the sister jumps into action. She approaches the daughter of Pharaoh and makes an offer. She says, would you like me to find someone for you who can care for this baby? And the daughter of Pharaoh says, I would like that very much. And so big sister runs to mom and says, the daughter of Pharaoh has found our baby brother. Can you come with me? And so she brings her mom and offers her mother as a nurse for this child. And the daughter of Pharaoh offers her payment to care for the child and says, if you will take care of this baby for me, I will make sure that you're compensated for it. Which only makes me wonder why Jenny and I didn't try that, right? <laughs> And so she raises the child and then turns her over to the daughter of Pharaoh. And it says uh, in Exodus 2.10, and the child grew up. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. So here is the surprising truth. The way that God works in the affairs of hum humankind. We see this pattern repeated throughout the scripture. 
I'm going to unpack it a little bit, just real briefly. But when God is about to do something truly amazing, when he's about to stage a dramatic rescue, when God is on the move to deliver those that he loves from bondage, when God is about to, to change the course of someone's future, again and again and again we see throughout the Bible that the story begins with a birth, with a baby. Pharaoh actually doesn't hold a candle to the oppressive, murderous intent of Satan himself and his minions. And when evil seems to be winning the day, as humanity suffers under the rule of sin and death, God, in enacting his plan, to stage a dramatic rescue, to deliver from bondage, to change the course of the future of humankind. How does it begin? With a birth. God's greatest work began with a new birth. His greatest work in saving all of humanity from sin, from death, from the devil and his plans began with a new birth, with a child. The, if, you, if you look at all of the scale of human history, all of the, the, the human atrocity that you've seen unfold, even in the last couple of centuries, God's plan to rescue all of humanity, the lens goes from here down very, very small, and we find a newborn child. God's greatest work began with a new birth, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I find this fascinating. Just like in Moses' time, as God is about to, to, to bring to life a dramatic rescue story, just like in that time, Jesus, on the same mission to save all of mankind, comes into the world as a baby under a child death sentence. Isn't that fascinating? It's almost as if the enemies of God know exactly what he's up to, right? Because God's greatest work in the history of all of humanity begins with a new birth. A child is born. And what is true on a human scale is true on an individual scale. God's work in you begins with a new birth. Just like his work in saving humanity began with a new birth, his work in saving you individually, personally, from sin, from death, from the schemes of the devil, his plan, his work begins with a new birth. With what is such a quiet private, personal affair. 
Jesus having a conversation with one of the Pharisees during his ministry who has come to him with some real pressing, legitimate questions. The man's name is Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him in John 3, Nicodemus, you need to understand the truth is that unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, I'm not, I'm not tracking. What do you mean born again? How is a person born again when he is old? It's not like I can climb back into my mother's womb. And I mean, understand what you're saying is that God begins his work with a new birth. But how does that happen? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That you were born into the flesh. And unless you are born of the spirit, unless there is a new birth of Christ in you, the spirit of God, taking up residence in you. And how does that happen? First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's a simple decision of faith that leads to a new birth. A moment that seems on the grand scale of humanity to be so small and so significant is in fact the starting point for everything that God wants to accomplish in you. It's through new birth. All of the good plans of God for you now and for all of eternity begin when his spirit is born in you, when you say yes to him. Such a small event, such a quiet and intimate affair, new birth is. It's so much potential in it. It is the birth of God's Son that has made your rebirth possible. And baptism is a picture of that event. Reborn, resurrected, new life. God's greatest work began with a new birth. God's work in you begins with a new birth. And for all of you who have any smidgen of a concern about what's going on in the world around you, God's work in the world begins with new birth. 1 John 5, 4, whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith, the moment that I entrust myself to him. I am now born of God, and it is that moment, that, that, that small, private, quiet moment of rebirth where a person experiences the indwelling of the Spirit of God, born alive into their hearts. John says that it's from there that all of God's purposes for driving back the sinful forces in our world, that's where it starts. That's where it happens. Whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. Jesus is having this final conversation with his disciples. He tells them, I've got to leave. And they say, no, we can't have you leave. He says, no, I'm leaving. It's for the better. I'm going to send my spirit. It's for the better. And they're having a difficult time understanding 
And he says to them in John 16, he says, listen, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. And when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too, you have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. No one is going to take away your joy. God's work in the world begins right now through you with new birth. God is not unaware of the hardships that you face. He's not unaware of the injustice. He's not unaware of the grief. Just like in Exodus, we have tragedy on a national scale. But from God's perspective, his plan is already in motion. How? Through a new birth. God, we love you. We're so thankful that you have brought us from death to life. That you have filled us with your spirit. That through the birth of your son, his life, death, and resurrection, we too can be born again. We thank you for your grace. Jesus' name. If you have not made that decision, taken that step to place your faith in Christ, if you want to know the experience of His Spirit born in you, you can do that now. You can come and talk to me afterwards, but it's just simply turning to the Lord, saying, God, I have no life only death and the consequence of sin. And so I look to you, placing your trust in him. If you want to talk with someone about that, come find me after the service. If you want to get baptized today, come find me after service. We'll celebrate new birth together. We do have communion around the room. You can celebrate during worship. We have offering receptacles. You can give during this time, but let's stand together and sing.